Eric, it feels like we've been away for a really long time, but according to you, we haven't. Yeah, it's been like three or four weeks. I swear. I feel like we haven't been doing this show for months and months and months. It's probably because I've been doing just really intensive grad school work. I did, I think, an entire accounting class from beginning to end since we were last together. There's so much that I have to do for business school. I hope it ends up being worth it. That's nuts. That's that's super intense. I, uh, I can't imagine that kind of summer school commitment. Summer school is for dorks. Are you some kind of dork? <laughs> yeah, pro- yes, actually, I could say wholeheartedly, yes, I am. I was I was given the option to not do school over the summer, and my advisor even said, most students like to take the summer off. And I went, no. I waited a really long time to get my master's, literally a decade, and I'm not effing around anymore with how long it's going to take me. I'm going into this with, like an unreasonable amount of ambition. I'm just going to knock it right out. But do you feel like maybe there's like a contrarian aspect of you that only signed up for summer school classes because you heard that most people don't and you're like, I'm better than most people. (laughs) I've never felt so seen and attacked. (laughs) No attack, just observed. Just seen. I myself haven't been up to that much, so I didn't feel the the absence quite um, extend as long. But I will say that uh, this week I'm going to Gen Con. So if any of our listeners are going there, you can tweet at me. Maybe we can say hey or, I don't know, play a game together. I am competing in a Transformers TCG qualifier tournament on Thursday. So before you hear this, before this is out, and hopefully I'll qualify for the Saturday Invitational, which would be sick. Uh, Also, I'm prepping for a show that I do want to plug because it's a fundraiser for a number of good causes that we've talked about on this show um, but Act Blue, which is a site that like helps Democrats do things, has like a kind of a bucket of fundraising materials for um, immigrant issues like races and we belong together and things like that. And I am dusting off my Bruce Springsteen tribute after two and a half years of slumber to raise a bunch of money. And uh, we're already at about the three hundred dollar mark on that. Wow, that's really awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked. But that's going to be at the Cards Against Humanity Theater on Thursday, April, uh, Thursday, August fifteenth. At 7.30 p.m. And, uh, man, if you ever thought, I would really love to hear Eric take a deep dive into the catalog of Bruce Springsteen. Well, this is your time. I I know you've all thought that. I think that every day. (laughs) Anyway, so that's where you can see me. Lauren, does does grad school give you any performance opportunities you want to plug? I have had one fun development since we last hung out. I guess two. I moved back up to the north side, which brought me closer to not only the studio where we record now, but the dance studio where I do a class called Dance Dance Party Party. It is an all-women's sort of cardio dance workout class. And by class, I mean there is no instruction. There's just an hour of dancing however you want. As long as you're moving, you're doing it right. It's very supportive. It's very empowering. And I have been uh, promoted or chosen to be a den mother. So now I actually work and lead the dances twice a week, Sundays at 4 and Wednesdays at 7. And that's at the Perceptual Motion Dance Studio. Twice a week, it's at Damon and Bell Plain. It's $5. The slogan is no booze, no boys, no judgment. If you are a listener in the Chicago area and you identify as female, come dance. My DJ name is DJ Khaleesi. And yes, I picked that before the Game of Thrones finale that we've already discussed, but I stand by it. 
All right, Lauren, I'm going to give you a rare opportunity to affect the audio editing on the show. What's <gasps> what's your favorite song in the history of Dance Dance Party Party? So this song was not on any of the playlists that I have made. There's a new DJ every week. Uh, this was from the playlist that I was introduced to the organization with. It was from DJ L Train. Her name is Eleanor. The song is How to Be a Heartbreaker by Marina and the Diamonds. And the lights went off at Dance Dance Party Party. The music started. I was feeling like insecure. I didn't really get what we were about to do. And the second this started, I was pumped and I knew I was going to be in love forever. So I hope that's how you feel about our podcast, too. And welcome back to She-Ra Progressive of Power. My name is Lauren. My name is Lauren. I mean, shit, my name is Eric. I, I think you're making fun of me because I'm stumbling and tired today. I'm just doing bits. <laughs> okay, I'm just Haven't being defensive. This is our fifth season. I just do bits. Eric does bits and Lauren gets defensive. That's the whole dynamic um, by our t-shirts and our upcoming novel. <laughs> <laughs> upcoming novel. <laughs> yeah. Most podcasts have a t-shirt, but we've actually commissioned a really great fantasy writer to turn this dynamic into a whole world. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, Lauren and Eric verse. I can't wait. Featuring such characters as Jacob, JB, and Jess. I don't know. I'm just naming people who I know. Everyone's to name our show. is Jay, except ours. Except ours. That's the whole. Uh, yeah. That's the convention of the of the universe. The Joker. I, I think that one's probably jerky. I was about to say Joker is copywritten, but apparently the new Joker movie is not a comic book movie and like not really about the Joker at all. So I guess anything can be called Joker. Well, I mean, who. I don't know about you. I'm just saying I implicitly trust the guy who directed Project X to do justice to one of the most complicated and interesting comic book characters of all time. Do you sincerely think the Joker is complicated and interesting? I have literally written a peer-reviewed academic essay on the Joker. I think the Joker is fascinating. I thought the Joker was just kind of one thing thing but i think we'll have to talk about this offline it's called super sanity (laughs) and i recommend you all read up on it in my essay published in the book called the joker a serious study of the clown prince of crime from uh, the university of mississippi press so i love hearing about this in this context because i guess that means she-ra is not the only thing that you just go totally ham for did you ever think it was there's so many things <laughs> she-ra is just the thing that made me famous baby this is just the one thing i came <laughs> along on the ride for oh my god now i kind of feel like hanging out with you is a trap like i'm accidentally gonna get really into something else <laughs> Oh, my God. You can already blame me for one of the major fandoms in your life. It is a major fandom. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about She-Ra today because we're only one episode into the new season. The second I saw that this episode was called The Price of Power, uh, I freaked out because I know that that is a huge vintage throwback. I was like, Eric, did you watch it? I can't wait to talk to Greg from DreamWorks. I can't wait to talk to you. This is so good. And it just a a huge info dump lore episode that I'm really excited about. And I would not be this excited about this show if it weren't for your like obsessive fandom powers. I guess that's a compliment. No, it is, it is an info dump, but also it's like super compelling as a piece of narrative, which I appreciate. And I think this episode made me okay with the fact that Netflix kind of artificially created two seasons out of one. 
Yes, there are only six episodes in this season three. So to me, it really feels like season 2.5. And yet... It does really play like a season opener. It does. It catches you up and moves you forward in just a big, big way. But it also reminds me of the shift in the first season after uh, the princess, or starting with Princess Prom, where all of a sudden everything took on this very like epic connected feel. Because season two point one was kind of a lot of standalone episodes that had an arc, but were a little more episodic. I feel like, and now we're it seems like we're really cooking with gas. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. This episode basically leads us into what I think is going to be, for the most part, a single story for the entire season. Yeah. So, boy, there's a lot to cover. Like Lauren said, this episode is called The Price of Power, although, um, as we've talked about on this show, DreamWorks has already kind of done their version of the classic Price of Power in last season's uh, Light Spinner episode. So this, I think, is only named this uh, as a tribute to Shadow Weaver, who's a major player in this episode. Yeah, and it is very literally a part two to the previous episode. I mean, it starts in the moment that the previous episode left off. So it's almost like we're calling both episodes the price of power. It's all all that all that plot is in there. True. So in case you don't remember, the season opens with Shadow Weaver above Adora's bed. Um, she's just escaped the fright zone and has tricked Catra into letting her free. Meanwhile, Catra herself is now a prisoner because Hordak has learned of not only her kind of bungling, but her deceit because she didn't tell Hordak what's up. So Hordak's about to pass judgment on her in a very scary way. Um, the rebels are holding Shadow Weaver in a converted uh, guest room, which is a, a nice point of comedy in the episode. And Angela and Ca- um, Castaspella are interrogating her, but Shadow Weaver will only talk to Adora. So there's a lot of trepidation about that from everybody. No one wants Adora to go in. But eventually Adora makes up her mind that she's enough of an adult and mature enough to handle her, like, mother figure's manipulation. And uh, it turns out Shadow Weaver is dying because she used so much of her power to escape the Fright Zone that she can't really hold her form anymore. Adora learns how to use She-Ra's sword to heal Shadow Weaver with Shadow Weaver's help, and then Shadow Weaver kind of tells her what's going on, which is that, as we might have guessed, she's persona non grata at the Horde. And so she just really wants to get revenge on Hordak and Katra through the rebellion because she feels like that's the most effective way to do so. But in doing that, she also lets slip a revelation that I think we all saw coming, which is that Adora is not of this world, um, that she is special because she is from a portal that uh, – that Hordak previously opened. See, another thing Lauren and I were right about, not to brag, is that Hordak's whole plan is to bring the entire Horde army to Etheria via these portals that he's working on with Entrapta. But it turns out that he had managed to open one before, and Adora came through from another world. What does that mean? We'll talk about it. But Adora freaks out. Everyone freaks out. They all think Shadow Weaver's lying. But then Adora goes to Light Hope, and Light Hope tells her, no, this is true. Also, Light Hope doesn't understand that babies don't remember what happens. So Light Hope didn't realize that Adora didn't know this. Uh, so Adora's from another world. In fact, she is one of the so-called first ones. That's why she can use the sword, because the sword is first one's tech with a runestone in it. Uh, so what does that mean? Again, I don't know. But at the end of the episode, Adora decides to set off for the Crimson Waste, which is the source of, like, Mera's uh, message because Light Hope kind of intimates that Mera went on this similar journey and maybe that's not a good thing but Adora is going to figure out her lineage and what's going on but also Hordak's punishment for Shadow Weaver 
based on Entrapta interceding, is instead of killing her or whatever, is to send her, send Catra to the Crimson Waste to track down this first one's tech that Entrapta knows is there. So that seems to be the, tra- the trajectory for the rest of the season. Yes, and DreamWorks has already released several clips of Catra and Scorpia in the Crimson Waste. And so at least one, if not several episodes, are going to be following that pair sort of through the rest of this arc, which I'm excited to see. There wasn't as much of them in this episode as I thought there would be, given the previews. So we have a lot to look forward to. Absolutely. But yeah, there's a whole lot of lore referencing and kind of dancing around Masters of the Universe or maybe embracing it in this and twisting things we thought we knew. And it's really fascinating. So I don't know. uh, Where do we even start? This feels like the meatiest episode of the series, maybe so far. It it was so much. I watched it just the day before we're recording, and I wish I had had the time to watch it again. I actually was telling Eric, I rewound. I went back in it a couple of times to make sure I caught some details to be sure about them before we were here today. I know where I want to start, though. And it is that I think it was our last episode. It had to be. I predicted exactly what was going to happen when Shadow Weaver was over Adora's bed. I knew what she wanted and how she was going to ask for it. And I, at the time, when I theorized she's going to do exactly what she did with the Horde and say, I have nowhere else to go. My people turned their backs on me. I'm going to narc and help you defeat them. I really thought I was reaching I kind of came to that while we were talking in the last episode, and I went, oh my gosh, what if it's this? And I didn't think I was right, and I was screaming. (laughs) Yeah, we were right about a lot of our predictions, but then there was also some things in here that I don't think could have been called. Like, it would have taken a real leap to figure out that Adora was the first one. Yeah, that's one that I can honestly say I was surprised by. Especially because there's so much First Ones tech on Etheria that I'm now more confused about sort of where and when the First Ones were around. Right. So I think some of this feeds into the idea that this this planet used to be connected to everything and was cut off intentionally by Mara, but if there aren't any other First Ones on it now except for Adora... They were, you know, where did they go and and when? Because their tech is everywhere. They used to be here. Here, So here's a real leap is that the first ones are Eternians. uh, Because the big thing about the original He-Man show, right, is that Eternia is a land that mixes uh, magic and technology. So potentially, uh, Etheria is like a colony world where Eternia sent some colonizers with this massive technology. And for some reason, maybe it is Mara, they were cut off. Another even weirder stretch that I can't imagine would be true, but think about the only time we hear the word Eternia in the show. It's when Adora opens the doors to the first one's kind of ship thing, right? In the new adventures of He-Man, the starship from the future that gets Prince Adam is called the starship Eternia, and that is like the last vestige of humankind. I can't imagine that this is any way connected, but it's fun to think about. Well, I'm with you uh, for sure on the first half of that. Eternia is a word that gets used, and nothing else in this show so far has been a throwaway. So Eternia is for sure something. 
And in my mind, yeah, that that means the first ones were Eternians. What that means in this context, though, if true, is still a pretty big question. Huge if true. Well, another thing that happened while we were gone is Comic-Con. And there was, uh, like, the She-Ra Instagram account. Thank you, Seth uh, and Ashna, for running that. Uh, took some of the panel from San Diego. And there's the part in there where Noel says that uh, Mara is actually a reference to an ancient He-Man character, which she must be talking about Hero, which is someone I've talked about. So what if Mara... Uh, it's kind of implied that she's also a first one, right? So she's probably from Eternia. She's probably the She-Ra version of Hero, who was this like ancient He-Man, uh, like a prehistoric kind of He-Man. That's that's what I'm thinking, and that's what I think maybe Noelle was getting at in her panel interview. I hadn't watched that, and that sounds pretty reasonable. Comic-Con was such a wonderful example of how huge this fandom is, by the way. The the pictures of all of those cosplayers looked amazing, and I couldn't help but think after watching this episode, like, wow, this is such an engaging and deep story. This is going to have people into it for a while. Yeah, it's kind of funny that they waited for, like, in my opinion, the one of the bigger Hook episodes until after Comic-Con, but, you know, you can't really control things like release schedule to that degree, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, seeing the pictures, it like made me really sad that I didn't go. Like Amy Carrero hanging out with Lynn Manuel Miranda, it's like God, that would have been amazing to even just be nearby that happening. Yeah, I was also listening to the most recent episode of My Brother, My Brother and Me, and Griffin McElroy. They're they're also friends with Lynn Manuel Miranda, and they were talking about how at an after party, Griffin, while playing Uno, spilled a beer on Lynn Manuel Miranda. And so he was just everywhere hanging out with every fandom that I enjoy, apparently. And now it's in my mind that somehow, had I gone to San Diego Comic-Con, I super would have met Lynn Melo Miranda. Not through my own power, but through his, because he apparently met literally everyone at that convention. And I'm part of everyone. Yeah, Lauren is a subset of everyone. (laughs) Anyway... Those are my, like, crazy um, master's theories for this episode. I think this episode weirdly gets us both closer than ever and further than ever from embracing some parts of He-Man mythology. Because as Lauren pointed out off mic, we don't see a second baby with Adora, right? So right, and there's there not even – there's not really an implication of one either. I was right. hoping there'd be something open for interpretation. And there's not. I did kind of note, though, that the field – that the portal opened in was very reminiscent to me of old Masters of the Universe sort of set design. Yeah, and that's very much like where the portal would open when He-Man would come visit in the original She-Ra. It was just in the middle of this field, and it had that same kind of swirly design. Uh, similarly, kind of definitely a departure. We Well, who knows, right? But we learned that the stone in She-Ra's sword is, uh, is her runestone, as I mentioned. So it it's not necessarily connected to the sword of power as much as it's like a very necessary accessory of her own sword. Yeah, and I I think we technically knew that already from some of the like character bios that were out, but She-Ra definitely learns it for the first time in this episode. Yeah. And they reestablish it in the narrative, I think, as a reminder for people like us who are trying to puzzle together everything that's going on yeah. here. Um cuz that sword was found on Etheria, so it makes sense that the stone would be connected to sort of Etheria's magic. But there's just so many things to keep track of. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
And it'll be interesting to see how uh, the season develops because we know there's another Masters character coming, which is Tongue Lasher. And it's it's really it's hard to say what's going to happen at this point, but it is surely fascinating. Yeah, I just watched a clip with Tongue Lasher in it earlier today, and it's basically just Catra kicking his ass. And I thought it was really funny it in in a sort of tongue in cheek way. Oh, I said tongue. <laughs> it wasn't intentional. Uh, we're we're kind of reminding the old fandom that like the new fandom also rules. This is the new shit and new Catra can, can rock face. If you don't remember tongue lasher, um, was a toy from masters universe who was a snake man, but only was animated in the She-Ra show. Uh, he featured in the episode we covered called book burning where he was Hordak's temporary teacher, uh, which that episode continues to be scary in these times by the way but that's a whole other topic well that's literally why i think we started this podcast was the unfortunate truth that decades later we're still facing some of the exact same political issues like oh great we are still having these conversations but Uh. kind of the other speaking of tongue lasher the other tantalizing hint to the wider shira universe is like there's definitely an implication of well, it said there's another Horde army. There's a full army out there. Does it include like Horde Prime and Leech and Mantena and et cetera? Who knows? But there's a lot of bad guys waiting to descend on Etheria, apparently. Yeah, Horde Prime was the biggest question I had when that reveal was made was, is there a rank above Hordak in this world? Yeah. And there very well might be. Yeah. Uh, the person who is kind of interrogating and challenging some of these ideas. Well, there's two of them. It, it's very much Angela and Castaspella. Angela is my favorite character, as we know, and she really gets to be in this episode as an emotional force in, the, in a way that she hasn't in quite some time. The show has been turning to her as sort of a comedically scolding mother figure, and we really get to see her be a queen and a wife and a sister and just lots of things in this episode. Right at the beginning, uh, Shadow Weaver really gets to her and basically accuses Angela of killing Micah and tries to victimize almost herself. Like, I loved Micah and he was my student and I trained him. I'm not the one who killed him. And we see Angela just flare up and get held back by uh, Casta. And we haven't seen that sort of anger from Angela before, I don't think. We see, like, scolding mom anger, but not that, like, fury. And I kind of knew that was in there, and I was excited. I I hope we see more of that. What else was the first in that scene was the first present time scene, I believe, where Shadow Weaver talks to other adults. Yes. It's just the adults in the room talking for a while, and that is pretty awesome. That was just a a vibe in general that I really appreciated, was just the grown-up characters having... A dialogue and not just being portrayed as the parents, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the moment where Casta gets gets called out for being a bad spell artist <laughs> doesn't doesn't make an effective truth spell. Really, really showed the power imbalance. Even even dying. Shadow Weaver is still very powerful. Yeah, she's she's really um, snarky and manipulative still, but you get the sense that it's slightly different from manipulating teenagers, and it's really fascinating to watch it all play out. I also didn't think about it till this episode because I don't know that we've seen uh, Angela and Casta interact side by side, 
their relationship is kind of fascinating because they're like basically sisters in law, right? Yeah. But they're the blood link between them has died. So it's really cool to see them kind of how that dynamic plays out. There's a lot of that sort of family um what's the word I'm looking for? Just family interpersonal drama in this episode. Like I I always kind of got that there was playful, petty personality differences between Angela and Casta, but then in an episode like this where the going gets tough, they're completely on each other's team. They side with each other. They present a united front. But um, family comes up a lot. When when Casta does her flawed truth spell, Shadow Weaver asks her, are you sure you're Micah's sister? And when Glimmer is kind of having a bit of a justified meltdown, Shadow Weaver tells her, I trained your father. And Shadow Weaver is just kind of reaching into them and saying, like, I'm pretty deeply woven into your life. I know your I, I know your weaknesses and I know how you relate to one another. And it, it she kind of shows her as maybe an information broker, too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the way... I think we see Shadow Weaver operate at kind of a different level in this episode because even though you could read it as manipulation, I think her talking to Adora is pretty straight, right? Like when she finally gets Adora in front of her, there's not a lot of lying there, you know, not a lot of errors. Yeah, Adora calls her out. Adora basically calls her out on pouring it on too thick. Um, Shadow Weaver's calling her my child and... Adora's not having any of it. She says, we're past that point. Drop it. Choose a different path. And Shadow Weaver congratulates her. She's like, yep, busted. I was kind of putting on an act. But you're right. There's there's a genuine affection under there. And in the end, for me, the most inspirational quote in this episode is delivered by Shadow Weaver. Shadow Weaver basically trains Adora to unlock her healing powers and the line is, you are greater than your fear. And that line delivery was amazing. Just, again, some amazing voice actor work to hear that voice go from the chewing the scenery, Adora, you know, really trying to be manipulative, to just genuinely telling her, you are strong. See, that's fascinating because my favorite line of the episode came out of their interaction, but from Adora where um, she essentially brokers the deal with Shadow Weaver that she will help Weaver, but Weaver has to be on the level with her. And she says something like, I'll trust you, but you have to trust me. You have to trust that I'm not stupid enough to fall for your lies. And she goes on this tirade of being like, I I know what you would, like, I know your MO. I'm not going to fall for it. Like, we're going to interact as two people being honest with each other. And I thought that scene was, like, so tight. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of characters in this episode kind of draw lines and declare, I've learned something, I'm better, I'm stronger now, and I'm not going to be strung along or fooled by it anymore. That was a really great example that you just gave. And another one is Katra. Earlier in the episode, Scorpia is talking to an imprisoned Katra and is trying to have an emotional moment with her. I think, again, we see that Scorpia is pretty undeniably in love with Catra. Scorpia says, you're everything to me, and Catra's response is, stop it. Caring about people is what got me into this mess. Uh, and Catra, too, is kind of declaring, you know what? Based on the lessons I learned earlier in this show, 
your attitude can can f right off like get out of here with it um speaking of katra i see you are kind of browsing through some of our fan mail yeah we got a couple nice letters that i'd like to share parts of uh so one of them comes from our friend sean sean rose who um Sean Rose is a great dude in the Chicago podcast comedy scene. I um, produced a show of his called uh, The Hornet's Nest, which is a show about a super an ex-supervillain who runs a classic rock radio call-in show. Lauren has been a guest on it. Yeah. It's really fun. But Sean started listening to our podcast and had some nice words to say about how we kind of helped bring him into She-Ra fandom, which is very sweet. And Sean wanted to uh, stand. Can I? Am I too old to use that word? He wanted to stand for Katra here. So he says, um, after watching the new she I found myself really connecting with Katra. She was far and away my favorite character, and I think on a surface level, it's because she reminds me so much of Vegeta from Dragon Ball Z, who was my favorite fictional character at age 12. Katra fits into that sort of bitter rival anti-hero type character that for whatever reason has always appealed to me since I was a kid. So tra- talking about Dragon Ball, which there's a lot of anime in our mailbox, I think that means something. Uh, when he was a villain, Vegeta was pretty much reprehensibly evil. He murdered a lot of innocent people in cold blood, blew up planets, and was also a whiny, mean jerk a lot of the time. Despite all of that, he was my favorite character, and I felt very invested in having a redemption arc, falling in love and becoming one of the good guys. I look back and I kind of wonder why exactly a straight-up evil character like that would connect with me on that level. While Catra is nowhere near that level of bad... She hasn't killed anybody, as far as we know, I guess. I find myself falling into the same trap with her. Ketra is cruel, bitter, and seems totally fine aligning herself with the Horde as long as she's given a position of power. She's one of the bad guys, and still I find myself connecting with her so much. And then Sean's conclusion is basically that uh, Ketra is a teenager, and teenagers are full of insecurities, and uh, I think he relates to kind of this feeling of manipulation from her um from Katra's Ursat's parents. Um he says those scenes of Shadow Weaver abusing Katra both physically and mentally really got to me. And it's clear that Katra has had her self-worth trampled on ever since she was a kid. She doesn't seem capable of understanding why Adora left her to join the rebellion, which is what Lauren was just talking about. So she lets her insecurities fill in the blanks and assume that it was because Adora wanted to get away from her personally. He says, I've had many situations where I've lost touch with friends, where people I once really cared about just kind of up and left with no clear reason, and I immediately assumed it was because there was something wrong with me. So, Sean is feeling very sympathetic with Katra, probably in this moment especially. Katra is a very sympathetic character. I think when he says, you know, I don't understand necessarily why I'd be attracted, I'm attracted to a bad character, it's a bad guy. This show in general, we've complimented before that hardly anyone, with the exception of maybe just Hordak, is purely good or purely bad. I really like the Vegeta comparison. I've been reflecting on it since we got the letter. In this episode, Shadow Weaver seems to be the one trying to take a sort of Vegeta redemption move. In fact, when uh, She-Ra healed her, I actually thought she was going to turn into Light Spinner and she didn't. Ooh, that's interesting. I thought she was going to just, like, go crazy when she were healed her and be like, well, the, why I came here was to get healed, suckers. <laughs> what, yeah, when she said, I have to be honest with you, and she said, I have nowhere left to go, I thought I'm going to be like, I came here to waste you fools. <laughs> yeah. Dang it. No, but Vegeta's a very great comparison for Catra, I think, in the long run. 
Catra's relationship to Adora reminds me very much of Vegeta's relationship to Goku, or at least how I remember it, you know, watching it when I was much younger than I am today. Uh, and um, Bulma is my favorite Dragon Ball character. She's very close to my heart and is Vegeta's eventual wife. And so in my mind, I'm hoping Catra gets to find love too someday. Let's talk about Weaver real quick too. So the second piece of mail we have is about her. It's from our friend uh, Agata who gave us that fucking kick and Shira song from Brazil uh, earlier or later last season. Um, she writes us about the episode where we discussed Light Spinner and uh, how she doesn't think think that Light Spinner's turn towards Shadow Weaver is an example of the trope of women in power going crazy, which I think is something I said on the episode too. Uh, but I don't know whether I did. Uh, Agatha thinks that it's rather just her kind of always wanting power, not going crazy, but really kind of scheming. She says uh, she only wanted power to feel superior, to feel powerful, and to be important. She was manipulative but not crazy at all. Uh, and then she gives us an anime comparison. She says, I don't know if you've watched Full Metal Alchemist, but that scene that she and Micah were doing, the magic stuff, reminded me of FMA. And I ended up associating uh, a little, so I don't think she was possessed, but only that the shadows made her feel and see things differently, maybe. So she uh, she disagrees with the reading that the shadows turned her evil, like it only woke up what was already inside of her. And like Eric said, that's me, she left and went to the horde right away, didn't hesitate or have second thoughts. So I think that by the end of the day, she only wanted power and didn't want to be underestimated anymore. That's all. So this, uh, so Agatha here is coming down pretty hard on like Shadow Weaver not being crazy, but just being real thirsty. What's the term? Is it Occam's Razor, where the explanation is sometimes just the simplest thing you can think of? Right. And that that's kind of the simplest explanation for Shadow Weaver. I think I think both reads can be accurate if you believe that she was possessed by something. I think it would be easy to think that maybe Shira took it out of her. In this episode, because there was all that black stuff sort of floating around her and then there wasn't anymore. But I'm still open to the read that she was just herself all along. And I'll tell you why. In this episode, Light Hope and Adora sort of have it out. And Adora, one of Adora's main beefs is, don't I get a choice? I didn't choose to be Shira. I'm stuck this way. Why don't I get a say in it? And Light Hope pretty much gives her the business and says, you don't. You don't get a choice. I thought about that and I realized that Shadow Weaver did choose. <laughs> Shadow Weaver's power was absolutely her, on, on many occasions, having another option and saying, nope, I'm going to take this power, supernatural or otherwise. And so we see two characters face-to-face -face in this episode of extraordinary power, one who's sort of stuck with it and doesn't want it, or at least doesn't want it sometimes, and one who wants more and has taken all that she could get every time she was given the option. Very true. And yeah, I, I wonder, I mean, my personal feeling is that this doesn't mark a redemptive moment for Shadow Weaver as much as her calculating that, well, the best way to maintain any kind of power is to side with these guys now. Side, who, side with who's in the lead, right. basically, as far as she can tell. But that doesn't mean that there couldn't be a change of heart later. But I don't think we're done with the faux family drama with Shadow Weaver by a long shot. No. Had she transformed into Light Spinner, I would have said, oh, she's just a good guy now. That's what they're doing. But that's not what this is. No. 
Shadow Weaver is too compelling. Calm down. Your frustration will cause the energy you produce to become destructive if you're not careful. There must be peace in your mind if you are to heal. Come closer and allow me to help you. Speaking of characters switching sides, we also had a brilliant Entrapta moment in this episode in which Entrapta stood up for Katra, just directly to Hordak, told him he was wrong and supported Katra's continued service based on data. Basically said, look at the science, look at the results. Katra has been an asset. And if you ignore that, you're ignoring facts. And Hordak rejected that for the most part. Hordak let Catra live, but still, I think, rejected the premise that Catra was anything but a disappointment. And then in that scene, Catra stood up to him, too. So real quick, I do want to talk about that. But what's fascinating about the Entrapta scene to me is because I agree 100 percent with your read. But also to me, that was the first scene where it really felt like Entrapta was fully gone. I think because she was arguing for Catra's life within the context of being a loyal horde soldier. Like, part of me was hoping, I guess, that she would be like, oh, Hordak's going to kill Catra. That's not cool. I better, like, switch sides again. But she's just like, no, Catra's an asset to our evil causes for ABC. And if if you free her, she can do DEF, and then we can build the coolest gun. It's like, oh, yeah, you're gone. You're like a little Hitler youth at this point. Yeah, I wanted wanted to find a kinder read. I was I was really trying to justify like no, she focused on Katra getting first one's tech and her motivation is still just science and research and Katra's the most beneficial to science and research. But that's that's not the only thing she cites. She cites just I think horde victories in general. Yeah. Sad. But yeah, Katra's moment in the throne room right before you think Hordak's gonna mess her up. Pretty fucking incredible. Yeah, my oddly enough, it was such a small moment, but my favorite line delivery in this episode is in this scene where Katra runs her mouth against Tordak and is calling him a failure and all these things, and Scorpia just kind of quietly goes, oh, Katra. And that moment, I was like, oh, my heart. Because <laughs> Scorpia, I think, genuinely thinks Catra's basically signed her own death certificate. And yeah. you can hear that in just a couple of words. Yeah, I think so, too. Pretty, pretty cool. Kind of the last major thing I want to talk about in this episode is something you brought up already, which is Adora's relationship to destiny. Uh, just a, a lifetime of being hyper into lots of media makes me think that this could become one of the defining themes of the remainder of the show. And it kind of already has been, I suppose, but it gives me a very like Luke Skywalker vibe, you know, of like, what is this character supposed to do versus what do they want to do? Yeah, I was very surprised when Adora asked Lighthope if she could go home. Because given that a baby, as she says, can't remember anything, she doesn't remember where she's from, she seemed suddenly very interested in the idea of going home uh, and referring to this place she's never known as home when, you know, her home right now is Bright Moon. <laughs> and I wonder what her friends would have thought if they were standing right there. She would like, can I go back home to where I've never heard of and where I don't know what it is and I don't know anyone there? Mm. I think I think that's to your point, though. She doesn't want to be just a pawn of destiny. And if she could have made that choice in that moment, it would, I think it was probably less about going home and more about being 
active and making a choice that she got to do herself. Yeah. But one, I think, also gets the sense that this is maybe the path Mara went on because Light Hope's response to Adora being very emotional is to say it is happening happening again. Yeah. Yeah. That gave me such goosebumps. But I, I don't know. I think that plays more into our thought that Mara was maybe more stable than people give her credit for because... In this very, like, Anakin Skywalker, you know, don't feel love, don't have emotions, right? Jedi kind of stuff. Uh, I think we have several examples in our science fiction and our fiction and our real world that that's not true. Uh, and if, if the worst thing Adora can do is have friends and, and question things, I don't know if Mara is so wrong after all. We keep talking about Star Wars and you think about what ended up happening to Luke in Last Jedi, which I think is an amazing movie, and I hate Star Wars fans because they made it all get retconned for nine, it looks like. Anyway, that makes me think more that Mara is Raz, right? Yeah, I am hoping. Not even that that's the best plot choice, but I just want to keep being right. I want my win record to just be massive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at the end of this, we want our listener statisticians to compile our correctness ranking. Because <laughs> all that matters in life is being correct, obviously. You may be right. I may be crazy. Oh, I have a couple more points that I'd like to bring up. Yeah. Um, so politically, not a lot has happened since we last recorded. There's a Democratic debate on tonight that will have aired by the time you hear this. And that's unfortunate because we had placed our bets on like who was going to drop out of the presidential race. And there hasn't really been an opportunity for that to happen. And I think this debate might be what starts thinning the herd some more. I predict that very few minds will be changed by it, but I hope I'm wrong. Maybe Castro kind of came out of nowhere last time. so. Yeah, and there's been a lot of sort of reflection afterward, uh, particularly from like the Biden and Harris camps about, you know, maybe I didn't do such a great job at that last debate. Maybe I need to step up. So we could be surprised. The reason I bring up sort of the political climate, though, is off mic, we were discussing, can we bring any politics into this? And in such a short time, there have been so many racist, just out of control tweets from Donald Trump about the leaders in America he hates and the cities in America he hates. Love it or leave it. Am I right? But the big one was go back to where you came from. He told four congresswomen who are all citizens. And they're women of color. And women of color. That's what's important. I mean, it's not important because it shouldn't be, but it is important based on what he said. He, you know, implied that there was somewhere other than America that these strong and influential women should should go. And three fourths of them were born here and four fourths of them are citizens. Yeah, and the reason that one resonated with me as as related to She-Ra is there is one moment in this episode where I thought the rebels do a bad job. The rebels are, are kind of bad, and I'll see if you agree or not. So Adora is talking about how she wants to talk to Shadow Weaver. Shadow Weaver's the woman who raised her. There's got to be some good in her, in her somewhere. Agree, that happens in the show. Very Star Wars. I'm with you. But... Uh, Glimmer and Bo say evil people don't change. That's it. Adora says, I changed. And they tell her, oh, well, you're not like them. And it's very much like, you're our friend. You're one of the good ones. And that 
that is, you know, in, in, in our society, it really ties into racism. It's, it, it's not related to race in the Shira context. But in America, when you hear someone say, oh, you're not like them, you're not one of those, you hear a lot of like, I want to deport Mexicans, but not my friend, my coworker who's Mexican, you're not like them, or like black people, whatever racist thing you want to say about crime, but not you, friend, person that I know. And you can't do that, even if you think you're being supportive, that's a microaggression. That's saying like, that's othering. You're basically saying, well, you are one of, of me, you are one of us, and all those others are still others. And you can't other your friends, you can't other Americans, you can't other people who were voted in or were born here. It's just crazy. See, I'm kind of of two minds about that. Not not what you're saying politically, but the read on that scene. Because on the one hand, I agree with you that like there are digs at the rebels' opulence in this episode. There's a running joke that I pointed out about like they don't have prisons; they have guest rooms. And Angela says, "Well, I removed the cushions, some of the cushions." Yeah, yeah. So w- there's there's been hints in the show that maybe the rebels don't totally get it and maybe when shadow weaver digs at angela that it's her fault micah's dead there's like a nugget of truth in that because the princesses were notoriously um anti-battle but also i kind of feel like this is this show trying to take on the idea of like going back to your family as like the woke one you know and I guess it doesn't change your read as much as, like, add another dimension because Adora is the one saying, like, I've seen the way things are. I think I can reach them. And so she's – I think really maybe Bone Glimmer's biggest misstep is not even being kind of shitty about the people's ability to change but not supporting their friend who's, like, going through this very, like, deep identity crisis about, like, I know the way things are. I want to try to reach the people who care, who raised me because I still care about them. And their responses are just kind of like blanket right off her feelings. Yeah, that is that is true. I mean, if you want to paste this to a political issue, you could paste it to I'm racist, but not towards my friends because they're the exception. You could also go in the other direction. Like I have grandparents who are conservative Wahoos, but they're still my grandparents. So they're on my team. And that's that's a way you think you're including people instead of excluding them. But no matter what, you are right. The point you're making stands. And it's like in that moment, just be a friend. Mm-hmm. Just be on a person's team and give them agency and respect that they have experience and feelings that are valid and don't dismiss those things. Right. Like this is clearly Adora's struggle. And sometimes Bo and Glimmer miss, miss those things. Not out of not meaning well, but, you know, the problem is that a lot of racism and bad things exist because people think they mean well and don't stop to analyze their actual actions. Yeah, and I do have to call the rebellion on their shit when they're being shitty because change of heart is a huge overarching theme in this show. And I think it's an overarching theme that our country needs right now. Um, well, Lauren, I'm glad you said that because we have Glimmer here online too. And oh, she'd really like she's to been talk listening this whole time. Podcasts are live now. Cool, that would be cool. <laughs> so, um, long story short, on this on this like thread here, Shadow Weaver may or may not be having a change of heart. I'm going to go with probably not. 
Entrapta may or may not be having a change of heart. I'd say probably not. But we also need to leave the door open for those characters and for the people in our lives, because wouldn't it be nice if they were? Wouldn't we want to welcome them back if they were? Look, I told you I just need to talk to her. Adora! Shadow Weaver will try to hurt you again. You don't know that. Yes, I do. She's from the Horde. She's evil. Evil people don't change. I'm from the Horde. I changed. That's different. You're not like them. You're good and kind and... And Shira. I was just like the rest of them. And then I left. Not because I picked up this sword, but because it was the right thing to do. I have to believe that the others can change too. Even Shadow Weaver. Just... just trust me, okay? I'm strong enough to face her now. I need to know if she's truly changed. If the woman who raised me still has some good deep down inside her. Deep, deep down inside her. So after I watched this episode, I rewound a couple of times. There were things that I wanted to get a second look at. Um, the portal scene, I really wanted to see, do we see Adam anywhere? Are there any more He-Man references? I did go back and catch one thing, and it's in Hordak's scene with Entrapta. Right at the beginning, Hordak sort of winces and grabs at his own side. He's in pain. And I was trying to figure out if that was for a reason that we could see as viewers. In the past, we've seen machines sort of burn him a little bit as they're putting on his metal embellishments or he's hit himself with a wrench or, you know, he's, he's expressed pain before. But I didn't see any reason for it this time. He just seems to be suffering sort of wholesale. I'm hoping that this was a, a sign we were supposed to catch. I'm hoping it does, in fact, mean something, and I'm not overanalyzing it. Given how much Hordak has complained about this backwater planet and how he was able to pull the oxygen from around Katra, and he commented that, you know, where he's from, that's what it's like— I wonder if being on this planet for an extensive period of time is hurting him. Yeah, I think there's probably going to be a subplot that Etheria is literally killing him. And it, it, it almost is a – it's like the – um, what do you call it? The pathetic fall fallacy of like internal – or externalizing your internal state. So like he hates Etheria so much that Etheria is literally killing him. Um We'll see where this develops, but I bet he's really anxious to get his army here for not just conquery reasons, but perhaps life support reasons. Yeah, just to wipe out whatever it is that's causing him suffering. It's probably the LGBT agenda. Probably all the rainbows. It's too gay for Hordak to handle. <laughs> Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show... You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower. <laughs>